You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. The data is just presented like upside down. These are, you took these, these many steps. Uh, you lost these many calories or you slept like this, but there is no analysis and no combination of all these features that can give the, the user something meaningful back. It's not actionable data. And that is what we're trying to do with, with Alsa. Hi, I'm Marek Pawłowski, founder of MEX, and that was Sophia Svantesson talking about the approach she's taking with her new life sciences company, Elsa, which is a startup venture that's really in the vanguard of a new generation of digital self-care services that are helping patients to not just track numbers relating to their health, but actively achieve better prognoses. Now, Sophia's journey to founding and leading Elsa is quite an interesting one. I mean, in many ways, it's the path a lot of designers dream of because Elsa is a spin-off from a client project that she was working on at Ocean Observations, her own design agency that she launched back in 2001. That notion of design agencies as incubators for future product companies is a compelling one for a lot of designers, and it's something I've talked to others about on this podcast too. Some of you might remember episode 31 when I chatted with Craig Bryant of We Are Mammoth, uh, who actually founded two new ventures out of his design agency. I mean, it's certainly compelling, but it is also still comparatively rare, not least because building any startup is a pretty challenging undertaking, particularly when you're in those early days of trying to balance it with time that you're spending on client projects to keep paying the bills. And Sophia and I get into some of that during our discussion, as well as how her experiences as a designer with a real focus on a user-centered approach have helped her along the way with this new venture. So some of you will probably already know her from the memorable presentations that she's given at MEX and at other conferences over the years. But aside from founding Ocean Observations as one of the the real early masters of the user-centered approach in mobile back in the early 2000s, She's also served on the Committee for Digitization for the Swedish government. Uh, She was selected by the EU Commission as a role model for young women in technology. Uh, And she served on the board of the RISE Interactive Institute in Stockholm. Now, these days, she's mainly focused on her work as CEO of ELSA, while remaining as chairman of Ocean Observations. Uh, And I'll be back at the end with an update for you on everything else that's been happening in the MEX community. But now, here's my chat with Sophia. Enjoy. Sophia, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking the time to join me. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I was racking my brains this morning and trying to remember when it was that you and I first met Uh, So I want to try and take you right back here to, I think it was 2003, and I was running our mobile industry intelligence service at the time, and I think you got in touch to tell me about a project that you had done for Samsung, helping them to try and understand 
cultural attitudes in various different parts of Europe so that they could improve the interface design on their phones. Now, I know that's going way back here, I guess 15 plus years, but can you remember what that project meant for you at the time? Because it, it was quite early on in the life of your design agency. It was. And, and actually, um, you meant a lot to us as well, Mark. You have a very, very special place in the history of, of Ocean because um, we were, of course, very, very proud of that project. And when we were able to talk about it and launch some kind of, kind of press release, I think you were actually the one who picked it up first and the one who wrote about it. And I still remember your headline. It said, uh, Samsung chooses Swedish design. Um, and to be honest, no one in Sweden wanted to write about this project. So the first publicity that we got was from you. And it was so important to us. And we were so grateful and so thrilled that someone in UK wanted to write about our project. Um, it, t- it took some time. And then the, the Swedes wrote a little bit about us as well. But um, Amazing. I, I had no idea there was a, a significance to that because I remember at the was. time being quite excited that you know there was this new approach to interface design that I could write about. And I, I felt like I'd got a bit of a scoop on it. So I guess it was one of those kind of happy meeting of minds. Yes, it was a huge milestone for us. And I think also getting in contact with you meant that I also got in contact with, I think it's what's called like mobile handset forum that ran in different parts of the world a number of years um, where with conferences. And, and through you, I was invited also to that scene and were able to talk about the project that we did for Samsung and then later on other clients. So, so the fact that we got in contact with each other in 2003, that has been a huge thing for us and and um, I'm so grateful. Oh well, wow. well I'm I'm glad to hear that all worked out. Yeah, I mean those were interesting days with the it was the World Handset Forum which we at the time were organizing in partnership with the guys at Informa uh, yeah. who also did the Mobile World Congress back then. It was this kind of new focus on this emerging world of of smartphones and devices that did a bit more than just made calls and and texts. But it's was that like always the intention when you created ocean observations back then to focus in on that particular area of smart mobile devices or did that happen a little bit more by accident for you no it was actually a focus and and um um going back to to the project uh with something that you mentioned that was like the start for for ocean or the company was formed before that and we didn't know that we would get that assignment but my background was in human-computer interaction from the Royal Institute of Technology. And in 1999, I wrote my master thesis and on, uh, I think I called it uh, Designing for Baby Faces. Uh, and it was um, an essay or a thesis on how you design for small screens. And at the time, there were hardly any small screens on our mobile phones. They, they were... <laughs> not really apparent at all but we we had started to get the uh, people sent text messages and on like one row single screens and I think that we had gotten the very first VAP phone probably from Nokia with two or three uh, lines on the screens but no colors or anything and and I went to Japan to study the iMode uh, phenomena and the the Japanese handsets and I realized that First of all, uh, it was an amazing country and I fell in love with, with the country and the culture, but I also saw that mobile is the future and that the Japanese people were using their phones almost like we were using our computers. I mean, they sent email, they browsed websites, etc. And and I was amazed about that. And 
So I wanted to write my master thesis about uh, that kind of phenomena and how you design for that type of screen. And then I, of course, had to, to go to Japan and study their services. And I also compared it with, with the first WAP services that we had here in Europe. I remember one of the projects actually being NatWest Banking in, in England. Um, and a few services that I found in Sweden. But I, I got to be really, really interested in the mobile world. Um, we didn't have a lot of mobile projects at, at, at Razorfish that we were called at that time. When I started to work at Spray in 1997, still going to school as well, um, we, were, um, we were a European kind of company, and then we merged with the American Razorfish uh, agency. Um, so when I was finished with my master thesis I've been working in the organization for three years and we had gone from being a kind of a Swedish North European company to a worldwide global company and I got to work in the New York office where they had a little bit focus on mobile and I got to uh, join the <laughs> special forces on mobile which was really really exciting and uh, what I also got in New York was um, more of a self-confidence that that I knew things. Um, I became the expert from Europe, uh, the expert on mobile, which was really, really fascinating. And, and I got to work on on very interesting projects and I got to speak in front of audiences about mobile and user experience. And I, I realized that I actually know a few things um, and I can do this. And at the same time, the whole IT industry started to go really, really bad. And people were uh, laid off both in, in the European offices and eventually also in the US offices. And, and that's where I decided that I really wanted to focus on mobile. And I was naive enough to think that I could start my own company and that would be easy. So I went back to Sweden and started Ocean in 2001 with the vision to do all these very interesting things that we were doing at Race Efficient, the user experience department. Well, I mean, a fascinating time to be having that trial by fire, if you like, with yeah. all of those early digital companies, because although you know, you could say perhaps three years was a relatively short period of time. During that three years, I guess you experienced almost that full cycle of the kind of extreme boom around some of the uh, initial um, interest in the, the whole dot-com thing. Uh, and then, as you say, going through that period of real contraction when a lot of the initial interest started to fade away from that to then founding your own business. I mean, you say naively, but perhaps also quite courageously to, to make that decision at that time, you know, at a time when a lot Lot of uh, businesses were laying off and, and struggling to make the decision to found your own thing and go in your own direction. Uh, you know, it took a, a certain amount of bravery. It, it, yes, I mean, of course, the, it was some kind of bravery too. And in the end, I, I had been four years with, with Spray and Racevich when I when I left and decided to start Ocean. But um, I think it, it is a great combination to be a little bit naive and not understanding how hard it is and how much you will also suffer and, and not only have uh, the uh, fantastic um, rise and shine days that I also experienced within Spray and Racerfish. It was great to to be part of the of the um, the whole upcoming of, of uh, digital and uh, it was mostly websites but we can call it digital uh, in, a, in a broader perspective uh, and then what happened uh, when everything is going you know bankrupt so many lessons to be learned um, which was fantastic and it has also of course helped me along the way to remember the both the, um, the the good and the bad learning so to speak yeah absolutely I mean just to 
set a little bit of context around that time. So that project that you did for Samsung, as I recall, mm. some of the the dimensions, if you like, to what you were working with, I think for people who have got into this area more recently, they'll find quite extraordinary. I mean, we were talking here, I think, about three by three icon grids. You know, mm. you had nine icons on these tiny little screens, maybe a, a pixel canvas of what perhaps sort of 200 by 150 pixels, if that. You know, it was a very different world back then. Uh, I mean, can you remember some of the challenges that you faced trying to create interfaces which actually had a degree of cultural meaning and a degree of relevance for users within those within those quite constrained limitations? Absolutely. This, uh, this was so very, very interesting part um, of the project because when we when we started out with the first designs, uh, we we got a lot of inspiration from from the iMode phones in Japan, and we I think we had seen the first phone from so- Sony Ericsson coming out also with a three by three grid, and and it was very natural to continue with that kind of um, structure and layout because it was you know fairly user friendly. But when we presented that to to the Koreans, I mean, we worked towards the headquarters in in Seoul when we worked with Samsung. And when we presented our first ideas, their response was, but this is Japanese. We don't want Japanese. We want something else. So we had to struggle so hard to try to come up with a new layout where you're supposed to uh, visualize nine different sections and nine different kind of features or functions but in a different way than three by three. And knowing that the three by three is the most user-friendly way of um, navigating, it was a huge struggle to try to come up with something else that wasn't like completely unusable, but still looked in a very, very different way. Um, And it was hard. It was hard, but it was it was fun and interesting, but it was also very hard. One of the things I recall about that early approach, and I think has really continued as a consistent theme throughout the work that, that Ocean has done and, and you have continued to, to do with other organizations as well, is there was that real focus on tying it to the real lives of users right from the outset. So the, the details are a bit misty for me, but as I recall, you went and uh, did some cultural investigations in a few different countries to inform that work, to help uh, the likes of Samsung, who at that time were quite new to the European market, to understand you know what were some of the attitudes what were some of the things which would make this more relevant? Uh, and you know, we know that now to be a real fundamental principle of the work that we see all across digital user experience design. But at the time, and particularly in the world of phones, you know, that was a, a pretty new approach. I mean, is that something which um, has remained uh, you know, a, a consistency to the the approach that you've taken with other clients since that idea that it's got to be grounded in uh, in the reality of users' lives? Of course, and I think that we have had to struggle less and less to push those activities into our our projects because that was something that we we had to force more or less into the project uh, when we started to work with with Samsung in 2001 and I think for them research was was mainly market research and they had done tremendous market research there was so much information on on design from um, like color and uh, material perspective rather than user uh, research and design research from a behavior and need and motivation perspective so so that we kind of had to force in in there and um, 
um, moving on for the next, I think, maybe five years, that was still something that you really had to push and maybe sometimes do without even getting paid. Because for us, it was really important to always understand, you know, what are the behaviors, what are the motives, what are the interests, uh, what are the challenges, what are the pain points, what are the opportunities? Because otherwise, it's really hard to make something that's meaningful. You can make things that looks good, but if they're not usable um, or useful, then it doesn't really matter in the end how beautiful it might be. So, and I think today it's a no-brainer for for most companies around the world to to focus on these things. Still, I think the budgets could be a lot larger, um, but it has been a huge. Um, journey and, and, and change in mindset among the people who order uh, design um, assignments, I would say, um, if I compare to, to how I felt and ex- what I experienced uh, in, in the beginning of the 2000s. I mean, aside from the, the commercials around it, and as you say, getting that mandate for doing the work, do you think in terms of access to, to methods and tools, it's become easier than it was back in those early days oh yes i mean i've i've always more or less always always had to invent the um, the area that i'm working within uh together with my colleagues i mean i remember back in the end of the 90s when we set up the interaction design department at the racefish office in stockholm we we went over to new york to understand how karen mcgrain had been working with the information architecture um, division at, at, on the American market and, and I mean one of the best kind of tutors and mentors and advisors that you can have um, and then going back to Stockholm and try to um, embrace that but also continue to develop the more user experience and customer experience part not only how you work with information architecture in in, in web projects but also the whole tying back to the customer needs, et cetera. And we came up with, with new methods, our, our own tools. And, and in the end, I think there was a method called the Stockholm method, even within the, within the global company, because there were no books, there were no methods, there were no blogs or, or anything, but we had to come up with everything ourselves. And, and that's how I was kind of taught. And that's how I learned that you, you will always have to come up with things yourself. You cannot only trust what's uh, already being produced. Now, nowadays, I think it's, it's less maybe coming up with your own methods and tools. There are so many wonderful things and so many smart things to choose from because there, we are so many in the world who are working with these things today so if you want to be more efficient and don't have to you don't have to invent the wheel uh, it's already there kind of um, still things to invent of course but um, huge difference I would say. So I was interested in what you were saying earlier as well Sophia about uh, where some of your own influences for your own design craft came from because it strikes me that you had quite a, a mix there I mean you mentioned some of the influence that you had from spending time in Japan which you know, at the time, um, it's hard to really overstate just how significant a market Japan was for mobile. That's where everyone was looking to see the latest uh, in mobile technology at that time. Um, but then also you had that background in Sweden with the, the degree that you took in, in human computer action there. You had the time in the US. And I, I'm curious as to whether you feel that your design craft kind of moving forward aligns specifically to you know what 
one might think of as a, a Swedish approach um, or a Scandinavian approach, or, or whether you've always felt that you had that uh, that mix of different cultures and influences to, to, to determine how you approach design yourself? Mm, that's a great question. And it's also um, fairly <laughs> complex or a little bit um, complicated, but I, I think I can reason a little bit around this um, when, when I studied human-computer interaction uh, in the end of the 90s, there were only like one book uh, on computer, on, hu- on human-computer interaction, and, and there was hardly anything else, uh, very little literature. Um, so um, you, you, you kind of had to figure out a lot of things yourselves. Um, I, I believe then when we started to found the, um, the information design department at the, at the Stockholm office in in um, at race fish in Stockholm, then we were influenced and got a lot of inspiration from 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 New York and from the US. And I think you you could start to probably read a little bit. It wasn't called blogs maybe back back then, but uh, but there were information online on on how to design for the web, etc. And and I think um, we did a lot of great things in Sweden, but was always also uh, we were all also. Um, inspired by and, and influenced by by the US and I think in Karen McGrain as I mentioned before we had the best tutor and mentor that you can have but what I think that we pushed forward in in Stockholm and Sweden were a broader perspective on on customer experience more aligning design with business so coming up with new tools and methods where it was about not being only meaningful for the user because you knew their behavior and then their needs, etc. But you also try to align that with what is meaningful for the business. Um, so a, a broader perspective, kind of, and working in in teams where you would have the business strategist and and the designers of different kinds, graphic designers and brand designers and interaction designers, etc., working together and I think that was kind of early maybe and we didn't see it to a large extent anywhere else so forming the customer experience design perspective was uh, something that I I definitely think happened in Sweden at that time and comparing to Japan I would say there was very little usability I mean mobile in Japan in the end of the 90s beginning of the 2000s were extremely powerful there were a lot there were uh, powerful services. There were large services. There were lots to choose from, but it was also extremely complex in terms of design. And I think maybe for a Japanese, it's, it would be easier to understand. They're used to the way that you organize information. They're used to the the, the letters and the language that they're using uh, is a way of um, being very very efficient with space. So you just push a lot of a lot of signs into one small area, maybe, and 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 they're used to that. But um, the the phones, the Japanese phones, were really complex for how you navigated, and and I don't think they were very well organized. So from usability perspective, you wouldn't be maybe so inspired and influenced by Japan. It was rather their creativity uh, and uh, the number of services that they came out with and the visions that they had for mobile and the way that they were used mobile. Mm, but from a design perspective and usability perspective, um, we didn't get. <laughs> so much from Japan at that time. Yeah, that, that's an interesting contrast in that, as you say, one of the other things, I guess, which made them a market that others looked to wasn't necessarily the usability, but um, more the fact that they'd managed to crack the commercial model. You know, they had exactly. people paying for digital services 
long before other countries around the world, uh, and that made them quite uh, the subject of quite an intense focus. Yeah, you know, because this was a time when operators in Europe, in the states, were still scratching their heads and working out, you know, how can we get people to use more data? How can we get people to spend more time staring at the screens of their phones rather than just using them to make calls? And yeah, you know, when you contrast that to where we are today, where there seem to be active efforts going on to get people to spend less time staring at the screens of their phones. It was a a very different era, I guess. Definitely. No, and I mean, the fact that you had um, a service that told you when the train was arriving and the train were leaving from a certain platform, I mean, in the end of the 90s, that was amazing. And, And that's what they were very, very good at, understanding, you know, what we need while we are mobile, moving around in our in our cities, but then necessarily the, the, the design of those services were, were not fantastic. So now, you know, as someone who has founded and run an agency of your own and now gone on to also yeah, found and run a, a startup business of your own where there's you know, an influence and a, a, a reliance on good design practice, are there particular hallmarks that you look for in the design education of the kind of people that you want to bring on board to your team? Mm, I mean, there are so many programs today and I don't know them all. So I, I think it's hard to make decision on who you would like to work with based on on where they have, have studied uh, because I think it's also a lot about, you know, personality and and your ability to be and you know to have um, analytical thinking that I think is really really important in in design and and whether it's a junior or a senior person. But what I would like to stress is that we talk a lot about the design process and and the different methods and tools that we have. But I think a designer's role is to maybe focus a little bit less on the process, but being so comfortable with the different tools that you have at hand that you understand you know what situation are we in right now what does it take to reach the next level what do we need to do next um, a process is is great for for guideline to some extent but we can't cling on to that one and think that we're taking specific steps and never change those steps because the goal the path to the goal, so to say, is usually changing. And the goal might even change as we move along and learn about why are we doing these things and what is it that we're doing and how are we designing and implementing a new service, for example. So I think it's for a designer, it's really important to be open-minded and not afraid of stepping outside of of a framework or a process. Um, So I'm rather looking for that ability in people than a specific education or a specific um, uh, that that they lean on to some kind of process necessarily. Is that as answering your question? Yeah, it very much does, and uh, you know, I've, I've been in agreement with that. That there's a there's a value to those frameworks. There's a value to method and, and to process, particularly when you're starting out. But if it's always seen as being something which defines the boundaries of how far you're prepared to go, then it's going to be hard to grow as an individual. And also it doesn't really do much to contribute to the growth of the, the industry and the craft as a whole, because the reason why those methods came about in the first place is because there were people who were unafraid to push those boundaries and to, to explore outside of them. And that's how new methods get created. So I think you're absolutely you're right. You need that that healthy balance between using something to get you started, uh, but then also you know, being willing to step off that edge and, and see what else is out there. So it makes you safe at the beginning, which is great because you don't want to feel too 
um, unsecure about the situation. But as you move on uh, with an assignment or as you learn and become more experienced as a designer, I, I think, like you say, it's more about uh, trying new things and trying new ways and not leaning too much uh, towards um, old methods or, or a certain process that you have learned that you should take these four steps or whatever it is. So you, I know, remain involved with Ocean, your design agency, uh, but I know you have also relatively recently founded your own startup. And I'm wondering, has that been something which has influenced your view on those design methods and that sort of more practical approach to the, the degree to which you're willing to experiment? Hmm... I, oh, this is this is hard because a lot of the work for Elsa was done within Ocean. I mean, uh, the 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 seed uh, for Elsa we put in the ground back in 2012, working for Karolinska Institute here in Stockholm. Um, so Elsa has been developed very much in a way that we would take on any client at at Ocean, and then eventually uh, we were ready to put a new product. Um, company uh, on the market so and 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 maybe that is not the the common or the usual way for for startups you come up with an idea and 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 you just start the company and you start building something but we had so much experience and so much work done um almost for six years before we started this so so it's it's difficult to, to answer that but now when we're up and running um i think it's so helpful to have all these experience and and the design approach I think is really really helping us because I hope that we will stand out a little bit in uh, in the um, area of healthcare and uh, life science applications because we have the focus on the user and the our for, first and foremost user are, are patients with chronic diseases and, and the first disease that we work with is is um, is um, uh, rheumatoid arthritis and what people tell us when they see our, our services that it is so clear that you have a focus on what's meaningful uh, for this particular patient. You're not looking at any diagnosis or any features and functions in this app. Um, it's not very scattered, but it has a very, very clear focus on, on, um, on this disease. So I'm very happy to hear that because I think it's the whole design thinking approach that has led to an application that kind of really understands the user. Well, let's maybe set a, a bit of context around that because I'm, I'm interested in that that arc of, of how it went from being a client project to then something which has become a, a product company. I mean, what was the, the initial brief that started the idea in motion and um, how has the the product which has resulted from that developed off the back of that brief? So the first assignment that we got at Ocean was for um, a couple of um, professors who had started a, a foundation called the Risk Minder, Risk Minder Foundation and what they had was or still have is one of the largest studies in the world on rheumatic diseases and also MS Mm, and what they wanted to do is really to democratize medicine. They they said that we're sitting here on tremendous um, data that could tell um, a citizen how they could decrease the risk of getting a chronic disease. Or for those who already have this disease, it could tell them how they can get a better prognosis for responding well to their treatment. And everything is based on lifestyle and habits and environmental factors um, and how actually behavior changes that you make yourself would would get you a much better prognosis. And, and this information was, you know, 
only more or less available with these uh, researchers at KI and to some extent maybe out in, in the in the actual clinics where doctors and nurses work. But they said that, you know, it's the people who need this information. We need to build new tools that can inform people with chronic diseases to make their own decisions, to get in control of their diseases and make uh, make sure that they have as a healthy living as possible and feel as little sick as possible. Because for a lot of chronic diseases, taking your medication is just one part of it. To get a really high effect of um, drugs for some chronic diseases demands behavior change. And people are not aware of this. So they said that they wanted to spread this data and this knowledge. So we got the assignment to start building some kind of little interface that was web-based that became a little bit of a life kind of um, lifestyle um, lab where you could experiment with different types of habit and see how your prognosis would go up and down and how you would respond worse or better to treatment depending on how you lived your life. Um, and that was between 2012 and 2014 on and off that we worked on that project. And then I, I I had this little prototype on my computer. It wasn't anything that anyone really could reach. And I was invited to speak at Wired Health in London, actually, in 2014. And I presented the idea um, behind this solution there. And I got a small article in Wired. <laughs> I was so thrilled about that. Uh, and and then I, I, I toured some more conferences. And, and every time I talked about these ideas, People would come up, come up afterwards, uh, doctors, nurses, uh, relatives, uh, I mean, family members who, who knew about these diseases and, and people with the disease themselves. They said, but where is this material? We need it. We want it. We want to use this tool. Uh, where can we get hold of it? And I said, it's, it's not available. It's only on my computer. And I started to discuss with these professors uh, that we, we should really do something. And, and they are also very... Uh, entrepreneurial uh, people and, and they have a very entrepreneurial mindset and they realize that unless we do something commercial this these these data this knowledge that we have will never get out and actually reach people so we started to think about setting up a company and then in 2015 we were approached by a pharmaceutical company uh, who said that you know we know what you have and we want to get hold of it so can you start building something and we can support you a little bit with some money so you get started? And the whole project was still um, taken care of within Ocean at the time. So we started to do more, more specific prototypes and we moved from a, a desktop web-based interface over to a mobile application rather. And then um, in 2016, I was ready to... to um, leave um, Ocean as, as, um, as a CEO um, and uh, become um, uh, more of an advisor um, and uh, build up Elsa and started to look for, for people that I could build Elsa with and uh, an investment and a lot of uh, other things that you need to, to start a company. And, and I would say in January 2017, we were ready to start building uh, the first application of Elsa. So has it been a challenge um, specific to it being something which is within healthcare, if you like, um, to embed that sort of user-centered design DNA within the company? Because, you know, obviously you've had experience across numerous different industries with the agency work you've done with Ocean, but I'm imagining that Possibly there are some quite specific nuances to how you do that kind of user-centered approach within healthcare, working with patients and doctors, uh, compared to doing it in, you know, say, a, a consumer goods industry. Yes, I think one thing that is important to 
um, to to understand and to know and to remember when you go into healthcare. And now I'm talking about Swedish healthcare. I I, I don't know exactly um, the circumstances and the situations in in other countries, but IT in healthcare has been. I mean, since Sweden was a country that early on developed uh, IT systems and we had computers in our homes and people were using computers uh, already, you know, to a large extent in the 90s and people had um, um, broadband connections, etc. We started to build a lot of um, information systems in healthcare so early that today they are like totally obsolete and they're really, really old, but they are expensive to exchange. So a lot of them are still around. And it means that people are struggling with IT in healthcare. Uh, they might have 15 different systems that they have to log into uh, just to get information on, on one patient that they're sitting with, for example. So it's there is a struggle and it's time consuming to use a lot of the, the systems today. So when you come to healthcare and say that, hey, we have done a new digital service that you might want to use, you know, you have to realize that there is a lot of resistance. <laughs> and so you have to show that you, you you understand where they're coming from and that there already is a lot of pressure and that they're already spending a lot of time with administration, etc. So so that is one thing, uh, which is a which is a challenge when you want to go in and work with with new services in healthcare. The other thing is that you know, also the digital transformation of healthcare is not really uh, synonymous with applying new technology to the same tasks that tasks that we did before, and that goes for any area, of course. But it involves a change that includes, you know, all levels within an organization. It's it's the stakeholders, activities, and processes, and business models, and logistics, etc. And and I think in healthcare, particularly, I see how digital and IT are rather changing. It's not changing the structure. It's just exchanging uh, old ways of doing things with new technology to still do things in in an old way so to speak so do you feel that uh the fact that you personally were coming from a background as a designer influenced the way uh, people potential backers you know you mentioned the pharmaceutical company for instance perceived what you were trying to do with this new venture do you think that had an influence on um why or, or how they wanted to do business with you? Um, yes. Yeah, so, so what I've learned from uh, dealing with now both the pharmaceutical companies and some of the healthcare providers that I'm meeting with, and and the patient and patient organizations, um, and and the researchers, I think what they see uh, in Elsa is an application that's really, really trying to understand the patient and supporting the patient from the patient's own perspective because a a lot of services in healthcare is built by for example IT companies or built by pharma or built by to some extent by the healthcare providers and it's a little bit more supporting them and what they need from the patients rather than what the patients would um, uh, value themselves so there is a lot of, you know, filling out information in systems, etc. Before you might see the doctor, and and they want a lot. They want to understand about your symptoms and and how you feel and and your um, biomarkers and you know your blood samples, etc. But the patient doesn't get a lot back. They hardly ever see this information themselves. It's going into the healthcare system. So, for us and with the design thinking approach, it's a uh, it's. Um, 
um, a given that we first have to understand, but what does the patient actually need? What are their, you know, how can we help them change their behavior? What does it take for an application to be uh, meaningful? Because behavior change also is one of the hardest things that you can deal with. And if we design new services in healthcare, we also have kind of two challenges. Uh, because the first one is being that we want to have patients start using our new services. That is a behavior change. And then in our services, we want to help them change their behavior so that they're responding better to their treatment. That's another type of behavior change. So it's kind of doubled up with, with really difficult challenges. And then you need a design approach to, to understand, you know, uh, how you can build upon people's reward system. What is it that makes them feel rewarded for using your services. So, I mean, you, you're specific to arthritis at the moment with what you're doing with Elsa, but if, if you extrapolate those principles out to a, a wider approach to using digital tools within healthcare, do you have uh, any personal sort of hopes and, and aspirations for how influential that can be, you know, how significant a difference this can make to patients' lives in, in this area, but also, you know, in the, in the wider sense across other um, diseases and conditions? Um, yes, because I, I think, um, I mean, I read an article the other day that, you know, apps in healthcare doesn't really provide any meaning or they're not efficient enough or we're not seeing a lot of effect, etc. And I think, first and foremost, I think that is because we have designed them in the wrong way with the wrong focus and the wrong perspective it's it, it hasn't really been focusing on 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 the needs of the patient so what i mean a lot of people also have a lot of experience from from different kind of health apps and trackers etc who is uh, counting your steps and what you're eating and how much you're sleeping etc and from what I've seen is um, looking at any health perspective, doesn't matter what disease it is, it might be also healthy people who just want to understand their situation better. There is really no value or evaluation behind the, the data. The data is just presented like upside down. These are, you took these, these many steps, uh, you lost these many calories or you slept like this, but there is no analysis and no combination of all these features that can give the, the user something meaningful back. It's not actionable data. And that is what we're trying to do with, with Elsa. We're putting like a value to the parameters that the, the patient is logging and showing them the combination of your symptoms and the habits that you've been logging means something. It means X, Y, Z to you as an individual. So you should be able to take action based on what we're showing you because we're combining uh, a lot of different data together to show a pattern or to show a prognosis, for example, or to show a risk for something. Um, and that goes for, for all of us. We don't have to have a, a chronic disease um, to use, um, you know, lifestyle applications, etc. A lot of us want to maybe eat healthier or move around more, but uh, we need to be rewarded. That is one thing. We need to understand the reward system, and that is a design matter. And then we need to show that data is uh, is valuable in a sense, and and not just list it um, with no meaning behind it, really. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely crucial. And uh, I remember um, you and your colleagues spoke a little uh, about this at one of our MEX conferences about that that move from data 
to meaning. And it's a huge challenge, you know, one which you really can't underestimate because by definition, meaning is going to be something which is very different to very different types of people in very different parts of the world. And it's one thing now to have overcome some of the barriers that we have to being able to track things accurately and uh, being able to collect those data, but then uh, being able to present that in a way which does actually mean something and leads to some change to people's lives um, across all kinds of different people, you know, a world of billions of different individuals with, with billions of different needs, uh, really does place an emphasis on that importance of embedding that kind of user-centric approach right from the outset and being able to scale that in, you know, perhaps the, the greatest way we've ever had to try and do within digital, you know, being able to scale something to the point where uh, it, you can handle huge volumes of data and potentially address millions of patients in a, a low cost way, but actually do it uh, in a way where it doesn't lose relevance for them as individuals. I mean, that, that's got to be one of the macro challenges facing uh, digital experience design today. Yes. And, and that's also why it's going to be so important. It's always been important, but it's going to continue to be important that People with different experiences, uh, knowledge and background work together. So so people who are experts in artificial intelligence need to work really, really closely with people who have the design perspective. So we understand, you know, what is meaningful when you're adding machine learning, for example, to a huge uh, amount of data. And um, I mean, what is it that can actually help people moving forward rather than scare them or make them more disappointed in themselves or, or whatever it is? So. Uh, I mean, the design is just becoming more and more important, I think, the more we digitalize our society. So you've founded now two businesses, at least that I know of, in mm-hmm. Sweden, but at rather different times. You know, the, the Elsa business more recently, Ocean Observations, uh, you know, I guess now nearly 15 plus, maybe 16, 17 years ago. What's, what was it like founding a business then compared to your experience now with Elsa? Because we hear a lot at the moment about um, Sweden and, and Scandinavia really punching above their weight in being able to found uh, interesting new startups and get them off the ground in, in the area of digital. Um, h- how was your experience with Elsa compared to what it was like creating Ocean? I think the largest difference is rather between founding a design agency, which is a consultancy, uh, compared to founding a life science company, which is a product company. Um, I think those differences are larger than the fact that there is almost 20 years between the two occasions. Because when you start um, um, a life science startup, there is so much support around you. Uh, There are so many networks that want to help you out. Um, and uh, you get a lot of advice, you get connections to investors. Uh, it's much easier to meet with possible clients because as a consultant, I'm not going there and asking for, you know, projects and their money uh, before they have seen anything up front. You know, as a consultant, you have to, you're, you're selling an idea and you're selling uh, a project that takes maybe uh, several weeks or months and, and no one knows exactly what it is. As a product company, I, I can come and I show them, you know, this is what we got. These are the, these are the problems that we can solve for you, etc. Um, and, and it's a different sales process. At least I experienced that. So uh, it's much easier to get in contact with people. A lot more people tend to be interested it's easier to get to get meetings uh, when you have a a product company rather than being a consultant because there is something about the 
the the stamp somehow of being a, a consultant that is makes people a little bit less uh, maybe they're a little bit more reluctant to set up meetings with consultants I think I don't know if you agree with me but yeah and I mean I think it's interesting as well you say about the degree of support that's out there within the the pharmaceutical the healthcare industry for helping startups and I, I wonder what that is reflective of you know do, do you feel like these organizations understand that the, the the challenge of some of the things that you're trying to solve are best done within that kind of small startup based environment versus trying to do it within their own organizations which possibly come with you know their own bureaucracies their own speed of doing things which uh, are incompatible with the kind of uh, innovative approach that you guys are trying to take i i think so i hope so um that's my feeling that i get um, when talking with the pharmaceutical companies who are, are, are paying clients uh, in this stage of, of the development of the company, where I think they see that building these types of applications and services might be, be difficult for pharma to do themselves, but with an unbiased, neutral company who works with anyone, it's uh, it might be easier for them to reach and start serving and support patients, which they really, really want to do in new ways. I mean, these types of applications is, is a way of digitizing the pharma industry. Um, so I think that's also why they're very open-minded and very curious to understand how we can help them because maybe they have realized they've made a few trials maybe in, in, in this area and realized it's hard for them to, to move on with it. Some are probably very, very successful, but um, that we can be really supportive to their business development and their vision of supporting patients with, with self-care. With, um, I mean, um, a lot of chronic patients are spending most of their time in self-care rather than healthcare, and, and we new, need new players who will be in this space and, and, and support and take care of the patients uh, in that in those situations. So if all goes well with Elsa and you, you achieve the particular vision that you're aiming for, what do you think that will feel like for a, a patient who's using your tools? You know, what, what's the goal here when you think maybe three or four years into the future about the kind of quality of service and, and self-care that you'd like to be able to deliver? So looking at the area where we're in right now uh, with um, with rheumatic diseases and, and rheumatoid arthritis. So so this is a disease where people are, are almost constantly suffering. If you, if you compare with diabetes, for example, to, I guess, to a large extent, it's a disease that people do not really feel. Uh, but these patients have pain and feel fatigue almost all the time. And they're taking very heavy medication. And the medication that they're getting today has not a very large effect. So about 75% of people who get these very, very expensive drugs only experience a 20% um, if, if effect they get 20% better and that's not a lot so with Elsa we hope that we can become this tool that helps the patient with behavior changes so they get a much better effect of the drugs that they're taking and probably have to take for a large part of their life so 
we're being the catalyst of drugs that people have to live with for for a long time in their lives. Um, but also a, a mentor and a coach, kind of, and and someone who's there for them, who 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 sees what they're doing, is always keeping an eye on them if they want to, and and cherish them and support them for doing progresses and and that supports them when they're not doing any progresses so they don't feel so alone in their self-care and that could go for other areas than than just uh, rheumatic diseases but we we're starting there but we want to become this companion uh, when healthcare providers are already under a lot of pressure and do not have you know time to to see their patients more than once or twice per year uh, we want to be there between those visits and and make sure that the together with a close relationship with healthcare and supporting them as well make sure that the patients are moving in the right direction well that's a, a compelling prospect i think and that idea of of having a companion that can support patients at scale um, all across the world in, in dealing with this kind of thing is something which yeah, it, it really shines a light on the potential that the digital tools have to bring that kind of, of well-being to a much larger number of people at, at lower cost, which is, yeah, it's a, a, a nice prospect to look forward to, I hope. Yes, I hope so too. I'm curious for you as uh, an individual, Sophia, um, how you decide, you know, where to spend your time here because obviously you remain involved with with ocean and you have now your role with elsa as well and i know you've been involved with um, initiatives around design education um, around you know the role of of digital in society at, at government level as well is it a challenge for you as an individual entrepreneur to decide where you can most effectively direct your, your, your talents and your uh, invest your time? I mean, it, that is a journey as well for myself. And, and I've known now for a couple of years that I, I, that I am starting ELSA, that I want to start ELSA, um, but I'm still the, the chairman of Ocean and I'm an advisor at Ocean and Ocean and ELSA is also sitting together, which is a great thing. So I haven't really lost anything in a sense, I feel. And and Ocean has a lot of projects within healthcare as well, where I can advise. So I uh, I feel that I can be a little bit useful still in the in the consultancy kind of business. And you learn so much from consultancy projects. I'm so happy that I've had that experience for so long because we have learned first from so many different industries and now applying that in, in healthcare. Ocean is is keeping doing that and, and I can do that with with Elsa. So um, I mean, I, my, my main focus has to be on building a startup because it takes more than usually 100% to do that. Um, I do work a lot right now, but I, I am fine with that. I think it's really fun. I don't want to... I don't want to do less than I do today, really. But um, uh, I have fantastic uh, colleagues uh, at Ocean who is, is uh, you know, pursuing the company and running it in a in a very beautiful and, and, and nice way. And I'm I'm so happy for that. And and the connections between Elsa and Ocean are really strong. And I see how we can use we can get help from Ocean when we need because Elsa is also a very very small company. So it's a symbiotic kind of relationship that works out really well i think so i have the the best in in two different worlds yeah so i think that's potentially quite an interesting model uh, for the future of design agencies that you described there you know this notion that you can be an independent design agency which spins off 
a product business, but then goes on to support it. I mean, is that something which you feel um, has potential at a, a wider scale across other design agencies? Or do you think this is something which is kind of a unique dynamic that, that you and, and Ocean and Elsa have formed? No, I, I think I've seen it before. Um, um, and actually, right now, I'm, I'm looking at a very interesting um, uh, life science or healthcare startup in in Finland, and when I got to know them a little bit better, uh, I got the background on them, and it turned out that it was a UX design agency who had been working with healthcare, coming up with a really good idea that was too good to just let go, and they also founded uh, a new company around that idea. So I've just uh, learned about another situation that is very very similar to to ours, and I've heard about that before. I think um, when you're a design agency working with um, with your clients, you have so many ideas for what you think that this particular client should do and what you think is the right way forward with the knowledge that you have from the user groups, etc. But it's not always that the client maybe agrees or they have a different agenda and they keep doing something else that you felt, hmm, was that really the right way forward? So I think a lot of us have this itch sometimes that, you know, we, we would like to pursue that idea and do it in our own way from a perfect kind of design thinking perspective and see where could this go if we if we applied all these things that we've learned and, and that we know um, and and so and I've had those ideas many times at, at Ocean I mean we have been into hardware products a couple of times which is a really really uh, difficult area but now eventually uh, we we decided that okay let's let's go for it let's let's build this idea now that we believe so strongly in um, and um, I think it's not very uncommon for for our types of agencies that um, we see the potential in something and if we have the means if we find the right situation if the timing is right uh, we go and do something about it well it'll be interesting to see you know whether that that model does play out and become amplified you know this is an interesting time for design agencies where you've got uh, independent agencies being acquired becoming part of larger professional services firms and then you've got those that are remaining avowedly independent and are looking for, for new business models so potentially this is one that we might see others in embracing. Um, now, yeah. I'm conscious we're, we're coming to the end of our, our time for this conversation, Sophia, but I couldn't really let the, the podcast go without mentioning what for me was one of the more memorable moments from our MEX conference series over the years. I think it was back in the September 2013 event. And I think it is still the only time when someone has written and performed a poem uh, especially for our MEX conference. And, and that honor went to you. Um, you wrote a, a wonderful poem, which you then performed uh, in your session at the conference, all about the dangers of uh, falling into a click hole on the internet and getting distracted. We were looking, I think, at the time at this notion of exploration and how you design interfaces which allow users to explore in a meaningful way without perhaps being uh, you know, distracted and ending up somewhere where they didn't want to be on the internet. And as I recall, the, the theme of the poem was that you uh, set out to buy some new things for your house that you'd just moved into, but due to the wonderful and myriad distractions of the internet, ended up buying shoes instead. Uh, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering, as we, you know, go into 2018, five years later, 
do you feel that uh, these design patterns on the internet for, for exploration um, have gotten any better uh, or are we are we still being distracted and um, taken off down paths that we didn't necessarily want to follow by all of these uh, these dark design patterns <laughs> yes that's it's funny to hear this mark i'm, I'm very happy to to uh, to be reminded of this uh, this event i didn't know that it would have such a large impact that little poem that i i wrote early that morning actually as well i think before before the conference but um this is super interesting because we have both ocean and alsa has recently joined the time well spent network in sweden um and i know that there are lots of things going on even i think google is is um now focusing on you know, putting our attention to how much we're actually like using our mobile phones, that we should take uh, a pause uh, and, and rest from our phones, etc. So uh, we haven't seen a lot yet. I mean, I think we're only in the beginning, but things are changing because we are consuming too much on on the internet, I guess. Still, a lot of us, it's so easy to get um, hooked uh, in, in the wrong way, maybe. Sometimes in the right way as well, of course. But um, uh, I'm looking forward to, to see what everyone who's um, putting some um, efforts into this movement, what, what we will come up with. And, and I can just mention for Elsa, we're building an application that we don't want people to spend a lot of time in. We want them to log a number of you know, habits, behaviors, uh, symptoms and whether they, they took their medication or not and that should take a couple of minutes and they should get some learnings and insights and then they should be out living their lives um, and I think we can probably design a lot more services that are more efficient and doesn't consume our time uh, unnecessarily. Well I think hopefully some positive steps forward and I'll put links in the show notes to the, the time well spent initiative, which I think is a very interesting one for people to check out uh, and yes. also um, to your poem as well. So that people can have a, a reminder <laughs> of the dangers of, <laughs> of oh being drawn into a, a click hole and, and disappearing off uh, down into the, the, the wonders of the internet. Um, but Sophia, thank you very much for, for taking the time to, to catch up and, and tell us about your, your news and what's happening with the new venture. I, I wish you all the very best with, that and with ocean in the future and you know i do hope you'll come back on the show um, at some point and we can catch up and, and see how it's all worked out yes thank you so much for having me and i just want to remind you that you're such an important milestone in in my career and, and in ocean's development so i'm so proud and happy that i i got to know you and that we're also doing this interview now almost 20 years later it's it's scary, uh, but also um, really, really fun to look back at all these things and, and also keep looking at the future. Well, it's amazing how time flies and here's to the next 20 years, I say. Yes, thank you. So, you know, one of the things which I've been enjoying most about recording these podcasts is that it gives me an opportunity not just to look back at all that history in mobile and digital experience design, but to see how many of those people, like Sophia, who were there right at the beginning, continue to do interesting, valuable things that are pushing forward the role of technology in society. Now, I promised you at the start, I'd get you up to date on happenings in the MEX community. You might remember from the last episode that I was talking about our Hidden Talents program. And this is where people in the MEX community who are looking for their next role can get in touch with me in confidence and just describe 
what their next dream job would be. I then share those job descriptions anonymously through our MEX channels like this podcast and the email newsletter and invite prospective employers to get in touch if they're interested. So we featured two hidden talents last time. There was an anthropologist looking to build on a career in quantitative and qualitative user insight. Uh, And there was a design strategist with experience helping both corporate innovation teams, but particularly startups, to validate propositions and prototype in a user-centered way. Uh, And I'm pleased to say that we've managed to make connections for both of these mexes with prospective new employers. uh, And I'm going to be looking forward to hearing how that works out. Uh, So here's the opportunity for you. If you're starting to think about where your next role might be and you want to get the word out anonymously, again, as part of this hidden talents program, then just drop me an email and hopefully I can find a way to help with that. We've already got quite a few employers who are on board and interested in this new approach to connecting with talent. Uh, But similarly, if you're running an agency or an in-house design team and you'd like to find out more about meeting some of these hidden talents, do get in touch. And again, I can fill you in on all the details. So I'm also looking forward to our next MEX dinner in London. That's going to be on Thursday, the 21st of June, and not Wednesday, the 20th, as I might have said by mistake in the last episode. Uh, And once again, it'll be a relaxed gathering, 12 people who share your interests in experience design. There's no presentations or talks. It's just good food, good company, and we have a bit of a discussion theme to get the conversation going on the night. Uh, This time, that theme is all about the notion of how the digital canvas is expanding with screens that occupy ever greater physical spaces uh, and ever greater pixel densities and the kind of new opportunities that this might open up for digital interaction design. If you'd like to come along, take a look at the dining club section on mobileuserexperience.com and there you will find all the details about how to get an invite to that dinner. So that's it for this episode, but don't forget that you can find links to everything that Sophia and I talked about in a particularly detailed set of show notes this time at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Thanks for listening, and do please keep on sharing the show with your friends. Goodbye.